And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Success Story Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Clary. On this podcast, I have candid interviews with execs, celebrities, politicians, and other notable figures, all who have achieved success through both wins and losses, to learn more about their life, their ideas, and their insights. I sit down with leaders and mentors and unpack their story to help pass those lessons on to others through both experiences and tactical strategy for business professionals, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between. Without further ado, another episode of the Success Story Podcast. All right, thanks again for joining me. Today I am sitting down with Bruce Boyce, who worked for nearly 24 years in the pharmaceutical industry, first as a hospital representative, then as a sales manager in the Great Lakes region. Uh, after, losing his job as, uh, after losing his job because he was a whistleblower for um, uh, a very large uh, false claims um, issue where Cephalon was a legal marketing off-label prescription drug usage. He spent the next 17 years working with the United States Justice Department on two separate False Claims Act cases against his former employer, Cephalon and Teva. He is the author of a new book called Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and to Save Lives. Uh, he was featured on CBS TV's Whistleblower. Uh, he is an advocate for patients. He's worked with a lot of professionals in the field. Um, he works with the public and with doctors to support whistleblowers to uh, make sure that drugs are used for their proper use to educate patients on their rights. Um, and, and all around just an interesting career turn for somebody who worked so long as a representative of the pharmaceutical industry. So Bruce, I really appreciate you sitting down. I would love to, I would love to unwrap the entire story, start with your career, but also the entire story that led to where we are today because there was a huge, huge lawsuit, tons of fines and damages, but how did that actually occur? What was the story that led up to that? Well, first of all, Scott, thanks for having me on um, and telling my story. Uh, the, the first part of this started when I was an area manager with a company around two, the year 2000. And what occurred was that um, I noticed that some of my reps were upset that their bonuses weren't higher than they thought they should be. And what I noticed was that there was there was uh, a group, another area, we were in a national meeting, and we were promoting Gabatril at the time, which is an anticonvulsant drug. And they were, and the group was promoting the drug for uh, anxiety 
in psychiatry, which is an off in it, which is an illegal off-label promotion. And I was really upset with it. And I decided if this was what was going to happen, at least I was going to try to stop this and save my job. And also I thought to save the company because I thought it was just a rogue area manager that was doing this. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, it wasn't a rogue area manager. It was the decision that the company was going to sell their all their products off label unlawfully. And we had three at the time. It would have been Gabitril, Provigil, and Actique. Actique is the fentanyl product. And so with that, um, I just decided that I was going to move on and collect my get my resume together. And I was gonna I was gonna just get another area manager job. Um, I was at the top of the heap in the industry. I had won President's Club all over, whether it be a, a manager or a rep. And and I figured I'd just move on. And a nurse called me and said, "Hey, would you do something about this? Because you know this is illegal." And I said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> Almost like to blow her off is to yeah, sure, I'll do that. Not thinking that her sister was FBI out of Texas. And so that's how it got started, because then I got a call from OCI, which is Office of Criminal Investigation, and those are the federal agents for the FDA. And that's how it got started. And, and tell me something. Um, so what, when you first uncovered this, I think that uh, it, it's very financially motivated and incentivized. When did you realize like you mentioned, this, this this woman called you and she said, can you do something about this? When did you realize it was a little bit more uh, widespread than just some people wanting to hit bonus, which is obviously not a, enough of a reason as it is, but I mean, still, it right. could be, uh, you said, you mentioned a rogue area manager, a few rogue sales reps. So how did you know this was a, a top-down issue? What happened was that it, I, I was demoted from an area manager because I voiced my opinion. Okay. And and then I went back into as a hospital rep, and what and as the one or two years moved on, I was trying to save the company, save my job, and it just kept going the way that I thought they shouldn't go. And I finally was sort of frustrated with it, and just said, "Hey, look, you know what? I'm just going to get a different job and move on." And and I really hadn't. You know, whistleblower wasn't even in my mind. All it was was trying to protect the company and protect my job. And and so I was going to just move on. And I had taken a vacation and and she called me on my vacation and she said, hey, would you do something about it? I know you could. And I said, well, I can't really because I don't know who to contact. Who would you contact? And so I really didn't know who to get a hold of. And I figured, well, I'll just appease her and say, yeah, sure. If you've got somebody, I'll talk to them. And I'd already been through, you know, my manager, my boss's boss. I went through HR. And as that played out, I could see that, you know, I became a voice for not promoting off-label illegally. And the comp that's what the company wanted. So the company knew who I was and what I, what I didn't, I wasn't going to do. And, you know, they turned around on me and because I wasn't promoting off-label. My sales tanked and they got rid of me. And so that's what that's that's eventually what occurred. But in that period of time, you know, I was still current with the company and I, I figured I'd just get a different job yeah. and move on. And that's what I was doing. 
and and this this final uh, settlement of over four hundred twenty-five million dollars. That's a it's like mind blowing when you think of where you started, just trying to deal with a few bad apples. I think we've all been in in the corporate situation where we raise a red flag or we're not happy with something, and then it kind of gets pushed under the rug or it's not given the attention it's deserved. But not a lot of us go through this this level of of i guess investigation um career right. turmoil i know you were blackballed from the industry so this is next level stuff um now when somebody reaches out to you like that and you realize you can do something walk me through what that investigation looks like as an individual and employee in the company um how does that start and how does that progress oh that's a great question Scott, because isn't that at the heart of it is that how do people do this? How do, how do this is one of the things that I ran into a, a wall with is that, first of all, you know, you, you wind up. One of the things I try to do is that I try I went to uh, the Justice Department office in Columbus, Ohio, where I was living. And people don't realize the security involved with with prosecutors. It's almost like. Uh, trying to get into a police station uninvited. There's security, there's doors. I wasn't, I dropped my name off. No one got back with me. I wasn't even allowed to come in the building. So it was like, I was pretty frustrated with it because it was like, you know, I tried to do certain things with it and it it just seemed like there was just no way that that was going to happen. And so what happened with, uh, I'll, I'll call her Sue, yeah. Not to use her real name. Sue wound up saying, well, let me get a hold of somebody. And I said, sure. Well, you set up a meeting with that, with the individuals and their OCI, Office Criminal Investigation. So they're federal agents, just like FBI. And and you go through an interview process with them. And, and, and at that time, I thought I was just thinking, OK, I'll just turn over documentation the company, the government will know what's going on and that would be fine. And if I have to testify later, I'll be in another job and I'll just do that. And so about the second interview, they asked me to wear a wire. Hmm. And that's when things changed. That's when it got real. That's when I went, wow, this is like, you know, I became, you know, they want me to become under undercover informant for the government. So we're we're still far away from the whistleblower thing. So with that, I said yes because I, you know, I to me I thought it was wrong in that what they they were trying to do was not just off-label promotion for a cough cold product that was relatively safe generically to the population, but they were off-labeling in the marketing for fentanyl. And if you know anything about fentanyl, it's, it's an opioid. It, it's 100 times more potent than morphine. It is a product that um, you are not to give it to drug-naive patients. So when you wind up starting promoting a fentanyl product to drug-naive patients, you're going to get in a little trouble real quick. And that's what I was worried about. And so consequently, I finally turned around and said, yes, I'll, I'll wear the wire. And with that... Um, you know, you, you're fingerprinted, photographed as an undercover informant for the government. And and that leads us into the national meeting where I wore the wire. 
That's um, that's a, a super stressful thing to go through. Uh, how did you make that decision? Was it just a, an ethical decision? There was no question about it, or did you maybe not understand the full scope of consequences, career consequences that could come of it? I, I think it, it, it was two things. It was both those things at the same time. One is that I just morally and ethically, I, I thought that what they were doing was way over the line, way, way over the line to, for sales to increase, to put at risk patients and, and really put doctors at risk and ever, you know, with misleading information. And so I just thought it was just a line uh, too, yeah. too far over the line. Uh, the other is that um, I just really felt like that, that if I could wear the wire and stop them, it would save lives. That's what. It, that's really what I thought. Is that if I could just wear the wire, it, it would be somebody reasonable would finally step in and say, "Hey, look, you know, you've got to stop this," and the company would basically be saved, and 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 basically, it, it, you know, and maybe those patients would be saved. So that's that's what I I thought. Now, I was going through your head when they first uh, when they first asked you. Um, so you agree to it, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to, sorry, you were going to, I didn't mean to no, interrupt you, apologies. I, I got your second half of your question, sorry. No, no, I was just saying, um, I, I was just wondering if you knew the, the implications, uh, and I think actually, let's actually, let's, let's, let's bundle implications with, with whistleblower protection, because I think that's a whole bunch of things that people don't quite understand properly, because again, not really many people go through this in their career. So right. let's just walk through the, 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 the how the case um, played out. So you were you were asked to wear the wire. Uh, how often did you wear the wire? Were you wearing it at work every day? You mentioned um, an annual general meeting. What was the actual the what did the investigation piece of that entail? How that played out for the first time I wore the wire was at the national sales meeting, and I wore the wire every day uh, for eight to nine hours. And so there's a lot of detail to that. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating how they actually do it but you know and i and i was still in good stay with the company and so i just figured i was going to wear the wire turn over the information interview with somebody else and move on with my career and that's not what occurred um and i think that one of the things that that happens is that the the federal investigators have to work so hard to wind up getting um, the the company caught red-handed at doing this that that it takes an insider to give them the information like this over a, a long period of time. There were there was really sort of a two-year period that I worked with the government um, pretty intensely, and it was more than once that I wore the wire. Mm-hmm. So to answer that question, so it was it was a quite a long time to wind up uh, working with the federal government as an undercover informant and not be a whistleblower. You could have you could have backed out of this help with the government and you could have turned around and said, oh, I'm going to file as a whistleblower with the False Claims Act. And you would have gotten a key TAM lawyer and you would have wound up, you know, been the first to file. And that's not what happened to me. I kept working with the government to tr- try to build the case to try to slow the company down and what they were doing. And other people filed in front of me in the False Claims Act. And so it was really, and in fact, the, the, the Justice Department considered me first to file 
because of the work I did, because that's sort of the basis of whether you're first or second in, in the False Claims Act. So so with that, it was like, you know, one and, and there was a lot going on at moving parts of this. You know, one is that I was an undercover foreman. I was collecting the information. And as as we we got the documentation and we got a tremendous amount of evidence that of the wrongdoing by the company. You know, the other thing happened, the, the, you know, the, lead, the lead investigator, Greg, that was on 60 Minutes, he, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. You know, the, the FDA didn't want to prosecute the company. So it was like Greg and another U.S. attorney out of Columbus want to turn around and, and, and charge them with drug trafficking. So they would have been able to close the company's doors and they would have been able to put those kind of laws in place uh, statutes against the company, and the FDA didn't want to do that. They wanted to handle it differently. Greg was actually moved off the case, and I got a different lead investigator. Because now, this the is way he wanted this, to handle all, it. this is this is all before I became quote unquote you know a whistleblower, yeah. right? And we kept investigating the company almost two years into it, and by the time I got to the fall of two thousand four. Uh, the lead investigator that was leaving said, you really need to get a lawyer and protect yourself. And that's when I got a hold of Phillips and Cohen, Peter Chatfield. And that's when I, we filed in 04 on the first case. And that's, and, and that's how the first case started. It was probably September, October of 2004. And then what, what, is, what is that point where you transition from, and that's the point where you transition from just an informant into an official whistleblower on the company, correct? correct? Okay. Correct. Now, what what happens after uh, that official whistleblower status? Are you still working for the company at this point? At at, at the time, I was I was fired by the company, and that yeah. happened probably like July, and they gave me severance. But, um, you know, I I was looking for a job, and I actually I actually had a great job that I was interviewing in San Diego, and I was director of training for them. Mm -hmm. And they had said that I was basically hired. I had actually pa packed my suitcases to leave home to to not only just do final interview uh, with with the execs involved with the company, but I was supposed to go to Arizona for their national meeting as Start. and be introduced as the director of training. And um, <clears throat> what happened was that uh, somebody from Cephalon called the company and nixed my job. And I was escorted out by security immediately. Now, so how did they, and, and, can, and I just, the one point that I didn't, I didn't understand was, um, so you had, you were now an official whistleblower and now you're, obviously this is an indication you're getting blackballed in the industry by other, by in other industry stakeholders because of what happened at Cephalon. But how did they, how did they know, how did they actually, they they let you go with severance. Like it doesn't seem like a, a a tumultuous break to that relationship. It actually seems quite non non you know non stressful when they let you go. So was it just a matter of did do you announce that you're a whistleblower and they're like okay walk you out the door or or how did they let you go and and what was that relationship break like? Oh, you mean with Cephalon? Yeah, with Cephalon. Sorry, yeah. Uh, what occurred is that. Uh, there was a business card by one of the agents that had Columbus, Ohio on it. 
And so at the, at the time of the national meeting, they sort of had an idea that it might, it might be me given the information to the FDA. And that's, that's my speculation. That's what I think occurred. And so they sort of knew who it was, but they, they had to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? Yeah. And so we, you can't just come in and fire somebody for no cause, right? And so they had to sort of play that out about what they were going to do. And I went through this whole thing about it was like, oh, your selling skills are bad now. And, <laughs> you know, you know, the whole routine, it's, it's all on you. Yeah. You know, your selling skills are bad. You know, we don't know what happened to you, but you just sort of fell apart. Well, yeah. that, it was just, you know, crap. That's all it was. And it was just trying to get rid of me. And so at that point, I sort of figured, well, the, you know, the gig's up. I'm ready to go. And so my boss said, well, why don't you talk to HR and get a package? So they were trying to steer me out to get a package. And if I got a package and I signed off, then, then they felt like they, they were okay. And that's what, that's what occurred. That's how that, so it, it, it was like, yeah, it looks like, you know, and even the vice president at the time called and said, oh, we love you, Bruce. And we hate to see you go. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. He's just placating. He's just playing. He's playing nice. Um, so, so uh, you know, you mentioned you got blackballed from that one company uh, that you had actually, you know, you thought you had the job, obviously not. And and you, and somebody from Cephalon, or, or you you assume somebody from Cephalon, um, most likely, it doesn't sound too far fetched, uh, stopped you from getting that job. So, what was? Are there not laws to protect whistleblowers? Uh, you know, career, uh, you know, career prospects. Um, yeah, yeah. Any, so what, what happened after you were let go? What was your, what was your life like after you well, let go, I think, were let go? Yeah. I, you know, Scott, I, and I think that that's, that's a really great question for the, your audience. And, and the reason why is that there really needs to be a change in legislation in the false claims act where it pertains to the whistleblower. And, and, and when you are what I consider like a real whistleblower where you've worked to build the case and you know, it's a good federal case against the, the company involved that, that, and you've gone through hell to, and you, and I was a millionaire before I was a whistleblower and I lost everything. And so the whole idea that I'm, I did this for all this money, Mm -hmm. I was making 340,000 a year, 20 years ago. Yeah. So just multiply that. And what I received from, from the settlements probably wasn't adequate. What I'm saying is that it, you don't do this for money. Yeah. But what occurs in the False Claims Act is there's a Section H. And the Section H talks about, you know, if you're retaliated against, that you get X amount of in, income for this or that, the other. The trouble is that doesn't kick in until, like, the end of a case. If a case is thrown out of court, then that kicks in. Or if the case is settled it kicks in at the end of the settlement period. Now, the, now the issue with that is that, you, you know, we settled for $425 million. There was 57 million for the, there were th- four, four total relators. So the, you know, 57 million was like divided up and I wasn't first to file and first of all gets the lion's share over 50% of that. So, so with that, you know, you, you really sort of let your section H of the retaliatory side go because you're signing off on this really big case. Right. So, so what happens is that the, the whistleblower is really not protected through this whole process early on. Yes. There are things that kick in later 
for the whistleblower as far as retaliation, things like that. But it's not till the end of the case or the case is either settled or, or it's, it fails and it gets thrown out. And then the Section H comes back for you. So that, that's, what I, that's why I stay in the book that you, we really do need to look at how can we do this. And, and, and I don't mean to get into like a constitutional issue as well, but you really, in a criminal case, you really can't have a whistleblower paid by the federal government. It, mm-hmm. That makes sense, doesn't it? You can't have that. So there's got to be some other kind form of protection that let's say let's say the whistleblower goes two years and they're able to be left alone and and the cases presented fail or succeed on that and and there there are protections early on on the whistleblower that they're able to collect that evidence now some of it is done in the sense that the false claims cases are sealed by by the justice department and so that allows the prosecutors to work behind the scenes when the when the company doesn't realize it, they're a target. But that still doesn't that aspect of it still doesn't help the whistleblower. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's just very, very interesting and very complex. Like I'm, I'm coming in as such a, a layman to this entire world, and I know you've you've lived it. And you know, even before we started, you said this was the 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 world of of. Now understanding all the legal around whistleblowing, around false claims, uh, even uh, the advocacy work you're doing right now, it's become a, like a second career for you, which I don't think you originally meant for it to be. No, but it's uh, no. No. <laughs> it's very it's it's very interesting. It's just the whole the whole story is just very interesting. Um, and I think that you know even just when I first uh, when I first read about your story and I watched the sixty minutes episode, it just the fact that speaking to somebody who's actually gone through this, because we always think like these corporations, oh, well, they more or less, you know, play by the rules and they, they definitely don't. And I think that's what, uh, you know, that was literally turned into the story of your life. Um, so, you know, now you understand like there's some issues with uh, the legislation. You weren't properly, well, you not, you weren't properly protected, but uh, you weren't able to be protected given the fact that nothing can really kick in until all these things are settled and done with. So what what happened in your life um, after this occurred? What happened with your job? You said you got blackballed from one job. I think there was oh one here where you mentioned there was some homelessness. Like, this is a tough, this is not easy stuff, right? So yeah. if you're making 340K as a, a pharmaceutical yeah. sales rep going to President's Club every year, that's a, that's a yeah. nice life. So, yeah, yeah. so what happened, what and, happened and, next? And Scott, this this is I started to write the book, and I'll, I'll start off this way. I started to write the book, and and my lead counsel Peter Chatfield ten years ago said, "Oh, you got to write a book." Yeah. He said, "What you went through, you've got to write a book." And I go, "I know, Peter, I know." But we were in a second case at that time. But what happened? I, I thought I was I fall off the cliff. I thought, okay, you know, I'm I'm a glass full all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm an optimistic person. And so I, I knew that I was going to have some tough time and I'd get a different job. I just didn't think that, you know, what occurs is that you get blackballed. But once you get blackballed, what happens is that if you're out of the industry, you're out of your career. So it's not just a job, you lose your career. I had spent 24 years in this career. So at that point, then then you try to go to do an interview. And let's say you know, I, I say in the book that I was interviewed for Sears Siding and I was going to sell Sears Siding. And the guy that was across from me looked at my resume 
And he looked up again and he said, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. That's what he said. The interview was over. He said, what are you doing here? You made this much money. You were a, a manager. You were about to be a director in training. What are you doing trying to sell siding? And, and he goes, I, I'm afraid what's going to happen is that I'm going to hire you. And he said, then you're going to get a job. And you're going to go right back to where you were. And, and that's sort of kicked in. It's like people wouldn't hire me because they were afraid they were going to lose me like because of what I'd done before. And, and, and maybe they were right. But, but so it went from your job, losing the career, and then just not able to secure employment. And then I had, I was, I was interviewing for wound care and it was the Pennsylvania company for wound care. And, and, and I was interviewing and, and we, I was still working with justice at the time. And, um, the, the U S attorney turned around and said, are you interviewing for so-and-so wound care? And I go, yeah. She goes, you want to wear a wire? I go, no, (laughs) no, I don't want to wear a wire. And the, and the, company that I was interviewing for, they were investigating hmm. and they wanted me to wear a wire. Cause I did such a great job with the other that they said, Oh, you're good. We're, we trust you. And I go, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. And so there, there were, there were a lot of those things that took place. And, but as that came about, I lost everything. I lost career jobs, houses, cars, mm-hmm. uh, to a point where I was painting with my son just trying to make ends meet. I blew out my shoulders from painting and, you know, I had rotator cuff issues and I couldn't paint. And so then a friend of mine, as in the book, gave me a job flipping hamburgers for $10 an hour. And that's what, that's what saved me. Um, other than being homeless, I think I moved five times in one year. So it was like, you know, with my mom, with my brother, then a friend, and then that fell apart. And, and I, and, you know, I, you lose, you lose things, you wind up, you know, you, you have assets and you have books or you have clothes or, and if you move five times in one year, you start to lose all that, you know, you just, um, it was devastating. And, and it, when I started to write the book, it, it took me like, I had to stop. I took four months. I, had, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't go back into it again. And, and, you know, once you lose everything, yeah. once you lose like career, job, cars, houses, you know, you, you lose everything. And now you're flipping burgers for $10 an hour. Um, and, and people ask me, would you do it again? And, you know, and what do you get out of this? Right. Well, one, you get you get this sense that, you know, you'd really try to do something bigger in yourself to try to protect people that were innocent. Right. Yeah. So that's that's a good feeling for yourself. But there is another aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is that you purge yourself almost. You lose everything and you find out about yourself. And I don't think I would I would never change that at all, because of what I learned about myself and learned about um, how much stronger I am and learn about, you know, you you know, and I, and was I, was I depressed in some periods? Yes. From it. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. 
Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink 
what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. But but what you what I went through and and... I learned so much about myself and my family came together. It was pretty powerful. It was very, very powerful. So with that, on one side, yeah, you lose all the other things and you have to adjust. But on the other side of it, you, what, you, you, what you receive is, is, is something that lasts you all your life of, of who you are. And, and, and it feels pretty good, actually. I could see that. Um, and I think that, I think that you make a really good point because I don't want to, as people listen to this, I don't want them to feel dissuaded or feel scared to do the right thing. If for, you know, God forbid they're in situations like this, because you mentioned, right. you know, there's some issues with the legislation. You went through some tough times, you did the right thing, but you were making a ton of money before and, and the settlement isn't really what drove you. But I think that there's a lot more to purpose in life that, and you, and you do come out on top. If you have that conviction, if you have that, like just, just, you know, you, you push through all of this stuff and it was tough for a bit, but now look at what you're doing now. So you have a book, you know, you have, you have a career you can be proud of. You have one hell of a story and you, and the personality that got you to success in the first place that those traits always do come back. They do rebound and, and now you're doing incredible work and you're doing other things. Um, so I think that that's really like the, the takeaway. I don't want to like dissuade people from doing the right thing because it's tough. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, like you're, you're living proof, like you mentioned, like some of the lessons you learned about yourself are probably more, more than you'll, you ever thought you'd get out of this in terms of any sort of, you know, recognition, settlement, compensation. That's not what, that's not why you do this stuff, right? That so. is exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's not, you don't, you don't, first of all, you don't take this on because you're going to wind up making a pile of money. That's not, that's usually yeah. not what it, what it is. It, 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 you, you're motivated. There was a fascinating study that Peter Chaffield, excuse me, got me into, uh, in Harvard. It was a, he's a lawyer and he's a doctor as well. And he did a study, you know, why do whistleblowers do what they do? And, and the study is really fascinating. And, and the study basically broke down to one simple answer. Something happened in their lives prior that they decided to pick up the cards mm-hmm. on the table. Something occurred. And for me, when I was in my first company, it was, we had a product called Felbitol. Mm-hmm. And it was an anticonvulsant drug that was indicated for Lennox Gasteau. And, and it has multiple seizure activity. So this, the epilepsy syndrome has multiple seizures to it. It's the kids that wear the helmet yeah. that they fall down. That's Lennox Gesto patients that are usually institutionalized. And it was a really good product for that. The trouble is, is that, you know, they didn't, didn't require a blood level and the company wasn't high science. And so what occurred was that we, we ran into problems with aplastic anemia and hepatic failure with that product. And, 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 I was I was really close to a group of neurologists out of Cincinnati. And what occurred was that they sat me next to the patient that my drug almost killed. Hmm. And they saved the patient. And so I sat in the grand rounds next to the patient and they went through the grand rounds was was for Felbitol and this patient. And you know the the chief at the time said, this is what we do. This is why it's important of what you say to us. And so it, that stuck with me. And so when all this occurred, you know, the, the study, the, the Harvard professor turned around and said, you know, this is, this is probably why you picked up the cards is because it was just not going to be on your, your, you were not going to let this go by on your watch. And that's why you picked up the card. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing, but, and I, and, and again, to reiterate what you mentioned prior, there are so many other positives that come out of this, you know, even, even the judge in, in, in the, in the, in the cases turned around and said, Bruce, I know it was a long time, but the statute worked, it worked. And so, you know, it, 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 there are really great positive things that come out of it and, and possibility of change. Yeah. Right. You, you can, as an individual in this country, that's what's so great about this country. You can, as an individual in this country, make change, but you just have to commit. You have to be able to be committed to that. So uh, there are, there are great positives out of this and you, you, it's worthwhile for you to reiterate that, that, that out of this whole chaos and, and destruction and all this that occurred that, you know, you can, you can affect good in this country with that. 
it, it is a nice ending to the story. Like, thank goodness, because um, that's one that's one hell of a journey that you went on. Um, now, now walk me through what you're working on now. Yeah, you know, even I, I when, when we spoke before, I said, you know, we can speak about your book. And, and the first thing you said is, no, that's actually not what I, I want to speak about. I'm, I'm right. doing something much more important than my book. I'm like, OK, so let's 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 go into that. So. And I agree. I think that that's, that's nice that you brought that up, like the advocacy, working with uh, doctors, working with patients. Um, so what are you doing now? What's, uh, you know, what's your mission? Sure. So, so right now what's, what's happening is that we're launching the book. But, but what has transitioned is that the book talks about what I went through early on with pharmaceutical and, and the fentanyl product and all that. But now the country has transitioned and, and could there be some of that still going on in pharmaceutical? Probably some of it. But really what's happening is that you've got an opioid crisis now in America. And with that, you've got, you know, fentanyl is cheaper than heroin. And, you know, you're, the CDC just released information that 71,000 in 2019 overdosed with an opioid. <laughs> So the numbers are up, and and this predate this number from the CDC predates uh, what's going on with Corona right now. So it's like, you know, the, you know, you're still got major issues, major problems with opioid epidemic. And with that, what I noticed is that it's really approached a multi-organizational approach, and so. If you wind up throwing your support to uh, PROP, it's uh, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And so, or AATOD, which is American Association for Treatment of Opioid Dependency. So, so there are groups that are available that most people don't know anything about, the families don't know anything about, that if they, they did a little Google search and they'd find help. Because right now, the, the big thing is, is, you know, I think a multi-organizational approach to help resolve some of the, the you know, opioid problem in, in, in America. So that's what I'm trying to do right now is to pro promote those, those organizations and also help in that. Um, I've got a conference call tomorrow that I'm talking to one of the chairpersons of one of those groups to try to partner up to do something with that. So it's an, it's, it, I think it's, it's a good thing to do. And I think it's, it, it's sort of an extension of what I went through in the book. And I think it, it makes a, a, a positive effect in America. And, and, and walk me through, there's a tons of, um, like the work you're doing with all of these uh, advocacy groups is, is incredible. I think that's very important. But another point that I wanted to discuss is the complications and, and, the, and I guess the help and support you're giving individuals who may not be, um, who may not be addicts, but they just want to understand drug options because that's a much more relatable for me, at least, um, uh, you know, that's a much more relatable cause helping me understand when I go to my doctor, uh, what they should be prescribing me and not, uh, if off brand is ever okay. Um, because I think that that's something that's very confusing for people that 
aren't suffering from uh, right. from addiction, right? That's just every single day, you know, you go to a doctor and you get confused. Right. And, about and, and not necessarily you know. opioid, right? It's, yeah. it's all, right? It's everything, yeah. It's everything. One of, one of the things I do, especially in my podcast, I talk about an off-label prescription that is legitimate. That if, if, a, if a doctor winds up seeing a patient and they have a medical condition, and the medical condition has failed the gold standard all, in all other areas of therapy, they're really out of, they're out of cards to play on this. And so they basically can go to an off-label prescription to see if there can be some information. And, and that usually there's a lot of information that is available uh, there's a compendium that talks about off-label information on certain products that the drug and the pharmacist have. And so so the, the physician goes by that. And usually it's a drug that's pretty safe, effective, and, and they've got a lot of information and they can go off-label with that. And they write a prescription for that. Now, that's okay. What I've talked about with the pharmaceutical company that illegally promotes off-label you know, that's an issue that, that is, can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. But you still have to be an advocate for yourself as a patient. In other words, if let's say you, Scott, go to a doctor and the doctor says, hey, look, you really need a script. This script is off-label. You need to have the right questions that you can, you, and it doesn't take a lot to do. Today in today's society, you can Google what the doctor is prescribing for you, and you can ask relevant educated questions about what I'm what am I getting what is going on here and what kind of side effects do I have what do I expect out of this and what are you trying to hope out of out of your your treatment modality and I think that's really important to say to people look you can take responsibility of your there's so many people I think walk into a doctor's office and I know it's fast and I know it's quick and you got to be on your toes with the questions but you have that you have that right to ask those questions. And I think, especially in today's society, that I think that's really very important. And 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 tell me something that's very relevant now. Um, and and you can go as opinionated or not as this, but at least right. we can at least start high level with with coronavirus, with hydroxychloroquine, with the doctors in D.C. that just did a press release. I think, you know, today were the uh, what's the day today? Uh, we're the 28th, and I think a day or two ago, there's a whole bunch of doctors in D.C. just did a press release, and I heard one of the doctors saying that this is an off-brand use for hydroxychloroquine that actually works preventing and treating uh, coronavirus, plus I think a couple other ancillary supplements. When, when, when you see this, what are your, th- what are your thoughts on, on this as somebody who's worked in the industry? Just keep it high level, and, and I'm curious as to what you think. My, my, my basis goes back to my training, and my training is from the package insert. And the package insert is, is all relevant information, usually to describe any drug pr- that's approved by the FDA for a specific medical condition. We all know that, or most know that, right? But the, but the issue with that, or, or, the, or the source of that, is pharmacology. And pharmacology is based on pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. And those two aspects, those two aspects are what's the basis of the studies and all the information that comes out of it. So when you're, when you're targeted a drug for a medical condition and you do the studies, what happens is that you wind up getting the information that is both effective and it's safe. Now that can, that can go on 
and 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 for any drug that can go on but when a doctor or doctors have this one product that has been around forever and all of a sudden it's in a new indication a lot of times what occurs is that the fda then expedites a secondary indication and they'll do they'll do do a post review of of a drug and get the information to the doctors that becomes a, a more stable situation for prescribing that, that more reliable and i think that both those things have to happen at the same time it can be really complicated but it, it's not unusual for for example neurontin neurontin was used for as an epilepsy drug for years and years and years and now it's prescribed really for uh, mood stabilization by psychiatry and and it actually i think works better in that area and so all that rolled in it eventually time will tell but eventually came out where the studies were done it became effective and now neurontin is really the gold standard for that so so that's a that's a involved process and it takes time what we got now with the coronavirus is that we're trying to get a vaccination and get out and to stop the virus and so there are things that are being expedited by the FDA, which is a good thing. And it's a good thing that the pharmaceutical industry is actually, they're smart, they can do this. Uh, rather than just doing a me too drug for the society, do something for the society and get a vaccination out. So those things can go hand in hand. And, I'm, and as I said earlier in the broadcast, I'm an optimistic person and I'm positive that they'll be able to figure that out. And hopefully then, share that with the world right yeah i like that answer a lot so so you know there there is possibility for drugs to be and this is a very again layman's terms but eventually repurposed if the proper due diligence the proper investigation doing it doing it safely um these are all things that have to be taken into consideration i i was just i was curious if that was a, a thing that does occur in his, in medical history but it, it obviously does it's something that happens um if if the if the proper research comes to light about the, the drug in particular. So I guess that that's what a lot of these doctors are indicating. And they're saying right. that the, the tests haven't been done yet, but you know, anecdotally without, <laughs> without the proper investigation, they've seen it work. So it's interesting to, you know, at least at the very, at the very minimum, um, there's some hope for some of, for some of these drugs, if not something net new to, to come to light uh, based on, you know, what we're hearing from, from doctors and, I think the one thing that I, I, you know, this is just more my personal opinion. I just wish that this whole, this whole issue wasn't uh, politicized. That's really my biggest issue with it. And I right. think that that's what a lot of it has come to. And that's unfortunate. You know, it's very, right. very unfortunate. Um, and, who, and, who, and who hurts from that? Who yeah. gets hurt from that? You or I? No, it's somebody that is sort of ignorant of the process that they don't, know what goes on and and they get bounced around and maybe their loved one goes into icu and now a ventilator and they could have had something that maybe would have helped them and their and their and their family member dies that's not yeah. right scott that's no. not right no that's it's very sad it's, it's horrible actually and that's what you know um that that's my biggest issue with coronavirus it's the fact that it's become a political topic, which I think is you don't politicize the pandemic. And regardless of the drugs exactly. that you use, 
regard, it's, you know. And it's been horrible. And, and, and with that, you know, people struggle. And, and, you, and I, have, I talk to people all the time about that they're confused. Yeah. They're totally confused with it. And eventually, you know, medicine is, is science, but it's an art. It just, it just takes time for that to play out. And eventually we'll get there. Okay. It's, it's just, it, it just unfortunate that people on both sides muddy the water and then all of a sudden it becomes a political football and who, who gets heard are the patients that, you know, like for example, the, the, the elderly. Yeah. I mean, it, it becomes a political football and really what they should have been focusing on is, is the patients that are most at risk. Right. Yeah, I agree. No, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Anyways, let's not, that's, that's a very, um, it's a, it's, it's very real for a lot of people. So I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I think I don't want to overshadow your story with, with, uh, what's going on with the, the politics and coronavirus because right. that, <laughs> that can go on for another, another hour of, oh, more of yeah. conversation. Um, yeah. okay. So I, I have, I have some, some wrap up questions, uh, but sure. before I get into those, is there anything about, about your story? Um, about the book, about, uh, you know, about your journey to where you're at right now that we didn't go into, I didn't know to ask, uh, you know, any floors open for any sort of closing uh, thoughts for myself. I I have to give kudos to to my daughter, Michelle. Michelle is a media guru. That's her wheelhouse. And um, uh, Skype and, and Zoom and, and, uh, you know, websites and, oh my gosh, you're killing me, Smalls. I mean, it, it is it is like, and she just goes, yeah, we'll do this. And I was like, dit, 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 and off she goes. And and she really, and she's a writer, and 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 she she really has done a, a great job of throwing this together and and making her dad look good, right? Yeah. Well, that's what that's what uh, that's what family's for. So, <laughs> yeah. and now now you're now you're uh, now you're um, uh, a genius with all this stuff. Now you. You can understand how to build. That's my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse, building out a brand, understanding social media. That's, right. that's what I do, right? Right. <laughs> oh my God, know, what a job. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. envy your job. Yeah. It's, uh, listen, you have to stay on top of this stuff. This is the new media. You got to figure out how to, uh, how to reach those people. And, and they're all on social now. That's where they get news. That's where they get, well, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's another conversation, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether, yeah. yeah you know what I mean? Where, where people actually go to get news. And I think people trust, uh, you know, that unbiased social media a little bit more um, from those third parties as opposed to like those left-leaning, right-leaning um, uh, outlets, right? That's, that's what that, that, those are the people that causes, cause the issues in the first place. With, and, with, and, yeah. and I think that, I think that um, your um, genuineness, that comes through also helps people parse through some of the fog that goes on. You know, I I think that people that are trying to help people that are genuine, that, that really are, are, are original in, in trying to move, move the ball forward. People recognize that. And eventually I think, and that's my optimistic side. I think, I think that saves the day. I think that finally will win the day and, and hopefully that's what occurs uh, with all this. So, and, and I'm optimistic with that. So. Agree. Agree. Um, okay. So a few, a few closing questions, just sure. to tee up your experience. Um, as you've gone through this, as you've gone through this journey in, in your life, 
What are, are you curious about now in the world of medicine, in the world of pharmacology? Uh, what are you researching? It uh, could be a, a, a certain group, um, like an advocacy group. Uh, you mentioned a few of them before, but what's on top of your mind right now that's sort of new that people should learn about? Well, I think, I think one of the fascinating things, and this is just, and, and, and I'll join you in this, this layperson's view, because this is, I'm not a, you know, a physician and I'm not a pharmacist. You know, it's just that I spent so many years in it. But one of the fascinating things is that, you know, discovery is made by mistakes. And people learn from their failures more than their successes. And I think that, especially in virology, and immunology that everybody's pushing so hard. I just have this really positive feeling that we'll discover something maybe to help cancer patients as well. And I think that that's, if there's something that, you know, maybe people pay attention to what occurs in, in the area of immunology and, and all that in medicine. I think it's a fascinating new, new frontier that they're pushing and hopefully something is discovered that helps boost the, the immune system in, in humans to, to help in other medical conditions other than just the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, who have the most influential or supportive people been during your journey and why? Oh my gosh. Uh, obviously my family, my kids, uh, my brother, um, and, and of all things, my ex. Uh, she's been really supportive. Uh, my friends, um, and I, and, and in, in Ohio, as well as my friends that I lived, I lived 10 years in Key West. And so all my friends in, down there, have been really supportive. And I, and I actually find that, that, um, I get, I get hate mail. I get crap like everybody else does, yeah. but the majority of people are really positive and really very supportive. And, you know, it's been a really good, feel good journey with that. That's a wonderful thing. I, I, I can't tell you how, you know, you know, most people my age would turn around and go, oh, you're going to retire. No, I'm not. I'm just getting started again. Right. I love it. Yeah. Right. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of uh, the resources um, that have helped you along the way? Things that could have kept you motivated, uh, educated you, inspired you. Um, I'm I'm wondering if there's like even like books or people that you that you tried to learn from or or consume during this journey. Um, there there is a book that I I read and it's. Uh, Doris Goodwin Kearns, I think, is the author, and it's a team of rivals. And just amazing. It was during the Civil War. It was Lincoln's cabinet, and they were they were enemies. They she she, she talks. It's a great book, and it, and and all this strife and all this these problems, and he winds up picking people based on their ability not on their political, uh, yeah. what their political side is. He, he, he picked people for the cabinet that were like really good at these certain spots. And a lot of times the cabinet members fought amongst themselves and he would sit in on this. But uh, it was an amazing book that, that through all this strife of the Civil War, how they came through that. 
It, it was, it was, uh, you know, it gives you hope, doesn't it? I like I I'm I'm I understand now when when we start when we talk even more you're you're, you're an incredible optimist and I yes. appreciate that because I don't think I don't think somebody who didn't have that amount of optimism could have gone through what you did to be quite honest and come out okay. Uh, so you're I think that, probably right. Yeah, that's uh, congratulations on that. Seriously, um, it's very Thank impressive you. because you you are by far the most glass half full person I've ever met. <laughs> after all this stuff <laughs> but it's very good and i think that you know hopefully another lesson an underlying and unspoken lesson is listen it, it does end up being okay at the end of the day and you yes. sort of champion that and live that um yes scott that's um, exactly right uh, a lesson that you would tell your younger self after going through this don't give up never ever give up if there's one thing don't give up. If you if you're passionate about something, you love something. This is something that you feel that inside. This is a calling. This is what you need to do. Whatever that is. If you're a pipe fitter, if you're a writer, if if whatever it is, if you have look at in yourself first to look in yourself to see who you are and find those passions. And when you find that passion, don't give it up for anything. I love that. And, and last question, um, what does success mean to you? Uh, success, success earlier in life meant something completely different. Success, success now to me, it has a lot less in material items. Success now is relationships and loved ones. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you put money and dividends in relationships to get those dividends and, and rewards back? And I think it has more to do with that in my life and giving back to other people to help other people. And I, and I think that it really is, I'm defined more by that. And so I went through this whole transition that just changed my viewpoint of what's really important in life. Yeah. And I think that's, and I based my success in that, that how can I, how can I work with, with different patient advocacy groups and how can I, I, I can do that, you know, and I think that that has, uh, Michelle wrote um, previously healthy, um, an article and a documentary on type one uh, children with diabetes that wind up going into uh, comas and, 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 she won a Webby Award with it. And, you know, and she'll say that her dad tells her, just don't give up. And through all that, you wind up, you wind up just seeing that, you know, and, I, and one of the comments I made to my son is that when you just don't give up and you, and you follow those passions, when you break through, when you finally break through, you're over the fence and you look around and you're the only one there. You're the only one because everybody else gave up. I think that's, that's really strong. Important. Yeah. Very good. Um, and then most importantly, uh, where can people connect with you online? Um, where can people find the book? Um, what are those uh, domains? Sure. Uh, BruceBoyce.com. And it's Boyce uh, is spelled uh, B-O-I-S-E.com. Um, and you can go, that's my website. And that hooks you right up to Amazon. 
and Amazon will take you to, to the book. Um, and then I might add on the website, there's all this other information about patient advocacy groups as well. That's all for today. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of the Success Story Podcast. You can download or stream this podcast wherever podcasts are available, including iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many others. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, and peers. Please leave us a rating on iTunes. It takes about 30 seconds as it allows other people to find our podcast and lets our amazing guests reach even more people with their message. And remember, any rating is fine as long as it contains five stars. I'm Scott Clary from the Success Story Podcast, signing off. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. 
Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 